Unpredictable prices at the pump have been major news for much of the summer, but as harvest approaches, bigger questions about diesel, propane, and natural gas loom. What's the latest intelligence from the fuel markets? That's today on Field Posts. is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. A host of factors, from the war in Ukraine to the global pandemic, have been putting the refined fuels market through the ringer, both in the U.S. and around the globe. The result? Record low inventories in recent months for fossil fuels from gasoline and diesel to propane and natural gas. The inevitable price increases have contributed to inflation for consumers, but for farmers, the prospect of securing enough fuel to harvest and dry down their crops is an additional hurdle. Today, DTN's refined fuels analyst Brian Milne joins us for an update on where these fuel markets stand today, how they're likely to trend over the coming weeks and months, and what farmers should be on the lookout for as winter approaches. We'll discuss the unusual summer driving season, some optimistic news on propane availability, and how economic strain might lessen the diesel shortage. Then we'll talk through the global picture, the weather forecast, and the timelines for alternative fuels right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential more than ever to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at mydtn.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Refined Fuels Analyst Brian Milne joins us today to discuss the latest in key energy markets for agriculture. Brian, what are you watching in terms of top-line most important things that are happening in the market right now for fuels? Sure. There's certainly a lot in the energy space to be aware of because there's a lot of issues both domestically and especially globally. But the one I'm really focused on is crude oil. We have a tight market globally. We have what is referred to as spare capacity. We have a limited amount of spare capacity. And what that means is just the ability for new crude oil production to come online it's very tight at this point where you have the main producer like Saudi Arabia, which um, has some more capacity to produce, but not a super amount. And elsewhere, we've seen declines in crude production over the past few years. The pandemic really caused a lot of issues, lack of investment, and there was a lower demand. And that is really underpinning some of the strength you're seeing in pricing just for all sorts of products. And so that's, if I have to pick one, that's gonna be crude oil. I think the 
headline grabbing kind of piece of news for the average person has been around gas prices, gasoline prices, obviously over the summer. It's the peak of the summer driving season. We talk about that a lot, especially as it relates to ethanol here in ag, but talk to us a little bit about the summer driving season. Did it shape up the way kind of folks expected and how did those higher prices, which have now come down a bit, it's just been a lot of uncertainty, unpredictability there. Talk about how the summer has been. It's been a very curious one. It's, it's really a, it's a great question. Yeah, so we had hit over $5 nationally at the retail level for gasoline prices in mid-June, and they have uh, declined steadily since. And part of the reason for that decline is that there is less driving demand than we would expect. Very interesting. Of course, when you look at we had the COVID period with the lockdowns, and demand was down substantially. And then we saw from the last half of last year, right through the first quarter, where gasoline demand was strong, gaining, it was growing over a year ago through that whole period. Then we started to see slowdown really from April going right into early July with demand. And we just had some more data coming out for July and demand is down a lot. In fact, we've had government statistics that came out today that shows over the most recent four week period, demand is down 8.8% against a year ago. And in fact, for the first time so far in 2022, gasoline demand is below year ago. So that just happened at the very end of late July. Now you wouldn't expect that as the strong labor market, right? There is this indication that higher prices, we saw that $5 per gallon gasoline did have an impact also there is improvement in vehicle efficiency, and that has actually been a factor. And that's really something that it was quite, quite surprising where a government study showed, just looking from April of 2021 to this past April, vehicle efficiency reduced gasoline demand, they're saying, by 2%. That was pretty substantial in, in, in that looking at that factor. But we look now going into the summer, we this phenomenon of work from home, we think we're seeing a big change in the way consumers are are behaving. And what we're looking at where you have some people that maybe were going to the office three times a week instead of five, we think when the gasoline price hit $5 per gallon, maybe they only went two days a week instead of the three days. And you're seeing that factor coming up in the data. And I would also note too that even now, I'll talk about three days instead of five days. So already when you're looking at work from home and some people are going back to the office, that's having an effect on driving demand. And we do know that some of your major metro cities, such as like New York and Chicago, they're people going back to the office. They're not going back to the office as, as much as employers want them to go back to the office. And that is taking a big chunk of demand, gasoline demand away. Even though we're in the summer months, you maybe you could thumb, you guess that's about 30% decline in just your baseline demand factor. So we do see a lot of people traveling, taking vacations. You hear about the parks that are overloaded. So we do know that people are traveling, but we think the lack of the, the commuter space has been a big factor. So that's what we're watching and it's down. And in fact, I could tell you that based on some of the statistics we've seen, really from that April to July period, gasoline demand was the weakest. After you strip out 2020, it was the weakest since 2001. So very curious. And that reduction in demand has been a factor of why you're seeing both crude oil and gasoline prices come down. I want to ask a quick follow-up. You're someone who has been watching these markets, who has been an analyst in the space. Does this feel like 
um, uh, maybe a moment when we don't have reliable models for what's happening. Basically, I'm thinking about we've in the past have been comfortable saying that fuel gasoline markets are very sticky, that basically no matter how high the price goes, like people will still buy approximately the same amount and it just eats into other parts of their budget. But it seems like people have discovered some new flexibility that they've never had before. And maybe that means we just have to think about price changes in gasoline a little differently. Yeah, could we be seeing a paradigm shift right now? Yes, and it's very early to say that, but it usually is. And but the, the, when you look at all, all of it, let's just take away the, the record high retail prices for a moment. But when you look at that work from home phenomenon, uh, that's that looks like that's when you talk about sticky. I think that's the part that's the part that's going to be sticky going forward. People have a lot more flexibility, and what we're seeing repeatedly for if people just don't want to go back to the office or somebody that used to commute from New Jersey to Manhattan, a one and a half hour drive each way, people are saying, why am, why did I do, why do I do that with my life? I spent, I'm spending three hours a day in a car. Why would I want to do that? And so people just don't want to do that anymore. And employers are increasingly given that flexibility for people to work where they want. So we'll just see how this models out. Does that stay? Do some employers say, no, you're going to have to come back to the office. Certainly some types of type of work. You do need to be at the location. So we'll see what happens and also how even you're not to get too into the minutia too much, but how do traffic patterns change? So before we had the commuters, definitely, in fact, you know, I talked about my commute to, to, the, to New York City. In the morning time, it was a parking lot. We were jamming the whole way through. That's less so, but you are seeing increased driving in the afternoon. So if people are working from home, maybe they run out for something and does that add to demand? And also <clears throat> where people have, some people have moved away from those closer commutes, you know, because some people would actually spend a lot of money to live close to the, uh, to the city, something to drive. And now that they can move far away, are they driving a little bit more to do other stuff, to go to the grocery store, where maybe it was a half a mile away, now it's four miles away. So those are the little things we're looking at. But the work from home dynamic, or work from wherever you want type of uh, dynamic, is very real. And it could it's likely diminish that elasticity in gasoline demand. So it's early to say, but but that is absolutely something we're looking at. I want to switch gears and talk a bit about diesel, obviously a huge concern for the ag sector and a really interesting intersection with new biodiesel has become very mm -hmm. popular. And I assume the shortage has only increased to that interest. Talk to us a little bit about the current diesel situation and where you think things are trending. Diesel, when you look at all the fuels, diesel is very tight globally in the United States. The Right now, in fact, when I'm looking at the data, we are, what, 28% below the three-year average <laughs> for diesel inventory in this country. It's about over 40 million barrels below where the three-year average is for inventory. That's just the United States. Globally, we're tight for supply. And diesel really is that engine used in manufacturing for commercial use, obviously for farmers. Diesel is used a lot globally. There's a lot of tightness there in the market. So there is that issue. And of course, when we look at, we have the Russian invasion in Ukraine and the fallout for that situation. Russia was a, a big exporter of diesel, among other fuels, or those components to make finish up on diesel. So that's an issue. We've seen some of that, some of that tightness is because of Russia, but not completely. We were already low with some diesel going into the year. So that was already a problem and this has exacerbated it. We'll see where we go now because some of the sanctions that Western nations are going to apply on Russia, some of them haven't, won't take effect until early December. So this it could become more of a problem 
Um, and obviously, war is unpredictable to begin with. And the response to that is going to be curious going forward. So that's a real challenging one. And so what we also look at it too, we're looking at diesel as what they call the middle of the barrel. This is refers to the way it's processed. And it also, you also have your marine fuels in there. I just bring this up because marine fuels, they go, so it's called bunker fuel. That's also very tight globally. And that's also exacerbating the problem you're seeing with the diesel market. In 2020, new regulations came in internationally that reduced the amount of sulfur allowed in the marine fuel. And everybody was really worried about where, if the world was ready for this. And then, of course, you had the pandemic. So we're okay, not an issue, but that is, it's an issue now. So it went as demand and a lot of shipping taking place, ships traveling farther locations. So that's all affecting it. So yes, the diesel situation is something to really watch. We just had three straight inventory drawdowns in the United States through July. So that one is, is a real challenge and something of real concern. I'm thinking about a little later this season when obviously during harvest will be a peak demand time for this year. As you're thinking about this market, is there any kind of levers that can be pulled, any alternatives, whether it's agriculture, whether it's shipping, whether it's other industries who have current demand for diesel that they can turn to as supplies get, I assume, even tighter than they are now? Yeah, there's not too many. And that's a real problem. Diesel is such a, it's the workhorse when you think about it, the fuels. and it's really not too many other, you know, at least now, eventually technology will come up. And when you have these tightnesses, obviously that's where you have the mother of invention. You start, you start seeing other technologies come into play, but it's a real tight one because diesel, it has a strong pulling power, right? So that's why it's using farms. That's why it's using in the industrial sectors. It, it's, it's not too much, too many other type of fuels that, that could replace that. On the other hand, you know, what you might see at least next year, couple of years, that could help alleviate that tightness is economic contraction. I hate to say it, but that is slowing demand. So when you look, especially in the United States, diesel demand is closely correlated to economic performance because we just said, you know, how it's used, commercial and industrial sectors. So a slowdown in the economy could help us slow down demand, but as far as alternatives for the fuel right now, not really seeing it out there. I think another potential thing that comes to mind is obviously the international picture here, who is refining, who is bringing fuel to the market. What could shift there? Is there any way that there's going to magically be another million, 10 million barrels that come to market anytime soon? Or what are you seeing in the international picture in terms of supply? So that's a really good question. And yeah, you do need to look outside the United States for that. So there are some projects in the Middle East, maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe India, that they can still maintain that considering some of the economic pressures they're experiencing. And also China, where you are seeing some plans to increase some refining capacity. So that's those are the areas you're looking at. There is talk of Mexico bringing on a refinery, but it's going to struggle. And it's a curious picture with the current president being very nationalistic. He's poured money into building this new refinery while neglecting his other refineries. <laughs> and, uh, so it's going to be a wash in where he's putting it. He's claiming that it's going to eventually start producing a, a lot of product, but 
anybody with experience has looked at that situation and said, no, that's not going to happen. You, you were, it's going to be years off. And in fact, it's actually a net negative for Mexico. Nigeria is also talking about bringing on new refinery, but they've been talking about that for years and they just can't seem to get that off the ground. So you're looking really at the Middle East and Asia. But that supply, by the way, is going to stay in that area. There's not going to be those incentives to come over to the United States. You know, of course, we look at these markets, we're talking global markets, so it does help. You don't want to dismiss that. But you have actually an opposite situation happening in the United States where you've seen several refineries shut down, some permanently. Some were trending in that direction because of the policy changes going on with the country. So that does create a greater dependency in the short term for these refineries that are online. So you have that and you also have a number of conversions from uh, producing your gasoline and diesel to just produce like renewable diesel, for instance. But the renewable diesel... It's not going to be just the same amount of diesel as you are when you were processing oil. So it'll be lower. But this is part of the transition that we're going through. And that tightness in that refining capacity in the country has definitely created this tightness that you're added to the tightness that you're seeing in, in, in diesel inventory and gasoline inventory. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about propane, which is another obviously fuel that farmers care a lot about. Talk to us about just what is the situation in the propane market? Where are things trending? Any optimism there that there might be some good news on the horizon? So propane prices are high right now. And the reason why they're high is that they are priced against the U.S. crude benchmark, which is called West Texas Intermediate. So literally it will trade in a percentage against the WTI contract. So we're down a lot for crude right now. So we're at 91.25 for crude oil. And that's a per barrel. But what happens right now, you have propane trading around like the mid 40% of WTI, where a year ago was over in mid 50s. So I, look, I just want to bring that up to so the propane, propane prices are high. But actually, when you look at it based on where crude oil prices are, they're actually down, right? So there is that component of it. We've seen domestic demand for propane, this demand in the United States, is lower. We've seen it, it's, it's lower than it was a year ago. We've seen inventory steadily building since May um, every week, and it's happened again, you know, went right through July. That is helping to narrow its undersupplied situation. We were below the five-year and three-year average a year ago, and we are again this year. It, that gulf has been narrowing, okay? So that's the good news. Exports are still high, though, very high, and they're going to continue to stay that way. Of course, if they don't, that means we're really seeing some economic slowdown. So we do ship a lot of propane all, all around the world, but a lot of it goes to Asia. Propane is a building block for a lot of chemical production. So you do have that export market, and it's been very strong. So now when you look at the U.S., part of the reason, by the way, why we have lower domestic demand is we've got some different types of plants that have come up for chemical producing that instead of using propane, they're using other things like cold ethane and stuff like that. There's these are steam. So that's helped relieve some of the domestic pressures. So that's good. But right now, it, when you look at it just from like a heating standpoint, because propane is used, it's mostly natural gas for heating in the United States. But if we don't have a very cold winter, we should be fine with the inventory. That's the way it looks right now. Things can evolve, but that's the way it looks right now. The issue that could be, and just something of a concern for farmers, as we look into going into the September, October period, was crop drying going to be really strong? It'd be a stronger pull on supply. That's fine. But, and we should be able to handle that without an issue unless it's, unless you start seeing heavy propane crop drying and then you start getting a really early cold winter across parts of the country. That could really create a problem. 
and and you really create some challenges for the propane market where prices really spike. And of course, farmers are certainly familiar with that because that, that can explode higher, seeming like all of a sudden. But uh, and, and the one thing to be careful of is I talk about those exports. We have lots of exports that come right out of Texas. It's a co- location called Mont Bellevue. It's just this massive site that a lot of propane supply goes out. Of course, farmers are in the Midwest, so you will look at a price in Kansas is essentially where a big benchmark price is called Conway, Kansas. So that uh, the one factor is if it's, if you're seeing exports really staying strong and the price is elevated and you start needing more domestic demand in Conway or even further up in other areas of the country for heating, it, you will be forced to pay a higher price to get to pull that supply away from the export market into the domestic market. So we've certainly seen some big spikes with that. So it's the one thing to be careful of. Having said this, we looked last year when we were going into the heating season, people were very concerned about the low inventory level, paid higher prices for supply, and then we saw prices come down. So you're stuck with paying more for your inventory than what the market was called for at the time. So it's a tricky one. And I would love to say, hey, just do this, A plus B equals C, but there is a lot of other factors that could affect it. But the bottom line is currently, yes, supply is below historical averages. We should have enough though. It's building quickly. We should have enough for the winter, provided we don't have extreme weather going forward. Obviously, the concern about how the fall and winter plays out, how wet the harvest is, how cold the early part of the winter is, a big concern. I think over the last two, three years, we've also learned that hurricanes can disrupt ports, which can affect fuel prices. I'm curious what other kind of weather factors you are paying attention to at the moment that might still be wild cards sitting out there that might affect fuel prices over the next several months. Yeah, I'm glad you had mentioned hurricanes because we are talking about the active season. So far, we've been lucky. DTN weather forecasters are saying there's a certain dynamic here that is keeping hurricane activity, which we've seen a bunch of storms, but they haven't, you know, been a factor. Of course, when we look at that, you come to late August period, middle September period, that's really with the height of the hurricane activity. So we need to be careful. Wrongly placed hurricane that affects refining would exacerbate all these inventory issues that we just talked about. <clears throat> so that's something of real concern. Definitely watching that very carefully. And as we know, we've had some historic hurricanes that have caused problems that have lasted for months. So there is always that potential. The weather is a factor and not just, we just mentioned about for propane, about cold winter could be a real problem by lifting prices, but very much watching the weather in Europe and also Asia, but especially Europe this year, both Europe and and Asia have had some pretty cold winters drawing down their inventory levels. And of course, we, we brought up the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Even before that happened, Europe was in an energy crisis. They tried to move to cleaner energy too soon, retire too many coal plants and nuclear plants and whatnot, and it has not worked out well for them. So they are literally bringing coal plants back into service, delaying uh, time shutdowns for nuclear plants to try to maintain the level of energy. There's a real crisis over there. The, the European Union is actually has a 15-point plan for how to reduce natural gas demand. They are being blackmailed by Russia, by Putin. There's no other word for it. that. Is exactly what he's doing. Europe is very dependent on natural gas from from Russia. And the main key pipeline is there's only flowing at 20% of capacity. This is done on purpose by Russia to limit how much supply there so they can't build their natural gas inventories to a higher level ahead of the winter. Um, also, at any moment, you can just, they can just turn it off. So there is that real concern there. And some countries obviously are affected more than others. That's why we've seen actually record LNG 
exports from the United States go into Europe, and that's going to maintain that pace. But that is is something that is really a big concern. So if we get a really cold winter over there, it's going to be a real problem, and prices will spike, and that's going to lift U.S. natural gas prices, which obviously you know, there's already a fertilizer shortage to begin with because of the war. That's going to make it even worse. Era. Last week and in late July, we almost got to $10 MMBTU for natural gas, which was a 14-year high, and then it backed off. That will definitely surpass that price in the winter if that happens. And natural gas gets into everything, and it is in part of the refining process as well. So higher costs mean higher prices, and that's just the way it is. But we're lucky in the United States in so many ways, having so much energy as we have, and um, being protected to some extent from the invasion. Some, but we still are feeling those inflationary pressures. But that's my real concern for weather is Europe. Great transition into the natural gas discussion, which obviously I think farmers maybe are most focused on outside of heating their homes, yeah. which I think is a concern. But crop chemicals inputs are already have been trending up meaningfully. And then just getting a hold of them at all this year was a challenge for a lot of people. Talk a little bit about where the natural gas picture is. And as you look to 2023, do you expect things to remain tight for kind of the foreseeable future? Or do you see some loosening there? We've had a little bit of loosening in the U.S. picture, and this had to do with one of the LNG export facilities had an explosion and fire and prompted it to reduce LNG exports from there. And it's, that's going to remain shut to at least October, a partial reopening. It needs to go through a bunch of government inspections. And so we're not expecting full export capacity till maybe December for that. And we'll see. It's still open question. That has actually, though, improved the domestic picture in a sense because of what they call feed gas that goes into these facilities, obviously, so they can put it on a ship and liquefy and put it on a ship. So that has allowed domestic storage to fill at a quicker pace than thought. So we are below the five-year average with storage, but it has been building quicker as a result of this. So that does improve the U.S. natural gas disposition right now and going into the heating season. But it's going to remain high. And our prices right now is off a bit, but we almost hit $10 just to give for some perspective late July. And we're at $770 right now. So we come off, but it's a very volatile market. And it's one that you could see a sudden price shock up over $1.50 and $2 instantaneously if there's some pretty bad news that happens. Having said that, obviously, we, I don't want to be, you know, you know, hurt our LNG exporters. It's very important. It's helping the world, but there is only so much capacity. We, really, what we're seeing is pretty much there, our exports have been at capacity um, you know, for the past several months, and that will maintain it. There's not much more you can do. We are bringing more capacity online, but still, that's the, that relationship with the U.S. again, and being an international supplier now of natural gas does create higher price volatility and higher prices. And it's a global issue and because of the way markets price and the way they look at stuff. That's why if you get a very cold winter in Europe, you could expect to see very high natural gas prices here as well. You've mentioned kind of some of the macro conditions. Obviously, supply chains has been something we've been talking about for three-ish years now. Talk a little bit, if you can, about just how supply chain disruptions have fit into this whole story. I think at some point we were hoping that there wasn't actually a supply issue. It was just a, a supply chain issue. It was just moving it around. That was the problem. Has some of that started to work through the system? Is there light at the end of the tunnel with disruptions? Or is, are we going to be figuring out how to ship to new places and move things around for a while longer still? 
So we probably the biggest problem with the supply chain, we probably moved past that point, but there's still a lot of issues. In fact, if you look at just overseas cargoes that are loaded at ports and bibbing those container ships, for instance, they were going down, but now they're back up again. What do I mean by that? They're at U.S. ports waiting to be offloaded. So that number has been growing again. There's some capacity constraints in unloading those containers. So that's an issue. And when you look at fuel and with the, the disruption caused by the Russian invasion, you do have some ships sailing longer distances as a result. And this affects more how the economy is going to be hit. But when you look at the U.S., yeah, there are some potential issues coming forward we, you have right now uh, rail workers were ready to strike they're cooling their heels a bit with the two-month period where the president's uh, you guys have to try to work something out over a two-month period so we'll have to see if they can resolve that like hopefully they do we've seen some sporadic strikes happening in the west coast at ports over various like legislation in california stuff like that does all impact the supply chain in the united states so having said that you, you have this congestion you have those potential issues and there's still a strong amount of products that have already been ordered that are going to be delivered we are seeing the economic slowdown starting to affect new deliveries so new orders are starting to come off for manufacturers so that there should be some relief on that because of lost demand to some extent but when you look at the bigger picture I think we're going to see some radical changes going forward. When we look at it after you had the pandemic, there's a lot of concern in the U.S. and other countries that we didn't make enough, have enough medical products. And we rely on other countries and we can't do that anymore. And so we need to be short. And then some people will start sharpening their pencils and say, that's going to be very expensive. Maybe not. And then we had the Russian invasion, like, oh, no, we've got to do this. So yeah, reshoring is going to be an interesting dynamic. So I think supply chain challenges are going to be with us for a while. They're inflationary. There's just no way to avoid that. If the reason why you're importing things is because it's cheaper to do that than to build it at home or build it at a closer location. So that's the reason. So you're going to see inflationary pressures, and we don't quite know exactly where we're going to go with this. So this is definitely something to watch. And I would say, yeah, when you look at it, just tough moving. And farmers know this very well. They've been struggling trying to move their crops around. And if we take away the rail strike threat, after the pandemic, they have less workers working at rail lines. So if you've had this tightness already. So, I mean, wherever you look at it, truck drivers, there was a real shortage. That has evened out. So we're okay with that. But still, we have a lot of tightness. You've got less port workers. Warehousing. There's so many different dynamics to this that we just don't quite know yet how they're going to pan out. But no, those challenges are going to be there. They're inflationary. And there is a potential for them to get really worse with worker actions. I feel like you've really covered what you think the next several months are going to look like and what the pressures are going to be. But any other kind of last ads on where you think we're headed from here on the overall fuels market? So when you looked at it, when we came into this, my, we have a team you know, that we all look at this, it's not just me. You know, we, we kind of look at all these different dynamics. We're looking saying, boy, there's just not enough supply, not enough production, not enough capacity to handle this, all this ramped up, pent up demand after the pandemic. And, and so we looked at it and said, what, where's your relief valve? How will this be rectified? And we talked about globally where you're going to see some capacity being added, but not so much in the U.S. So when we look at it, what is it? And I think when I'm looking at it, and I wish I could paint a really bright, rosy picture, but I think what it is, is we've already seen the economic growth slowing. And if you go by the uh, GDP numbers that came out, we 
technically cross that threshold for a recession the first half of the year. Right now, the indicators are for some growth in the third quarter. When you look at, we just mentioned supply chains, those challenges remain, higher fuel prices, even though they're going to They've been trending down recently, and they should continue to trend down. That is because of that, the lost demand. So the interest rate's going higher. I want to throw that in there, too, because that's really important. But I think where you're going to see some relief in prices and where you will gradually start seeing inventory restocking to a better level, a more comfortable level, it's going to take lost demand. And there's really no other way around it. So that's what we're seeing. It's going to affect some individuals, some companies harder than others, for sure. But it's hard to it's hard to see any other path at this juncture. Just a quick follow-up on that, because I'm curious how lost demand can look a couple different ways. But I think one of them that ag maybe would be excited about is switching some of that demand to ethanol, to biodiesel, to renewable, some of these renewable alternatives. But obviously it takes a long time to stand up a new plant to get significant production underway. In your perspective on the sector, is that really just a long-term trend that maybe in you know five or eight years, we might be seeing something significant there? Or is there potential that in the next 18, 24 months, we could be seeing some meaningful shift towards alternatives that helps relieve some pressure on the refined fuels? Sure. We've seen some pretty remor- remarkable growth in the renewable side, and that will absolutely continue. And we do have some of these oil refineries that are converting to renewable diesel. It's not biodiesel, but it's renewable diesel. So we are, as the shift is underway, but it's risky out there to, with these costs, with the higher interest rates, and not to mention corn prices are high as well, biodiesel, soybean prices are high. So I don't know that necessarily you're going to see more green plants, if you will, starting from, from nothing to building a production plant. I don't know that that the environment, even despite this higher prices, is ripe for that. I could be mistaken on that, but I don't think so. But uh, it does showcase the need for, you need all sorts of fuels and how renewable fuels are playing a, a greater role in satisfying that demand. And that's not going to go away. I think it's just going to increase. But it's challenging to see how you could get a bank to say, okay, we're going to lend you all this money to build a plan in this kind of environment. We have interest rates going higher. It's just, it is a little challenge to see that. So I don't know. I don't know that's going to be enough. And I just think, I just think it's going to wind up. We see a right sizing of production to demand, but I just really don't know where it is. And of course, I do need to throw in the EVs, electric vehicles, a big push for electric vehicles. Is that where you're going to see some of the relief? And we recently, there's legislation that was proposed just last week by West Virginia Senator Manchin with a deal with the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. And if that bill does get passed, there's a lot of incentives for the EV sector. And already with the infrastructure bill, by the way, there was already a bunch in there as well. So we are seeing more fast charging stations that should be coming online. The plans built in the United States actually making those. If the Manchin-Schumer compromise comes out similar to what's been proposed, I think so at least for the gasoline side, that that relief will come more from electric vehicles. I hate to say that's just technology is what it is. I'm agnostic. So yes, I just think it's challenging to try to get a new plant on. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. You can read Brian's full analysis and up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag fuels at dtnpf.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Brian Milney. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. 
And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.